Okay, we're in Isaiah chapter 50 today. Now, as Connor has brought out, uh, we're, we're trying to trace out in Isaiah who the servant is a lot. And it does seem that sometimes the servant is Israel, and then it does seem that sometimes the servant is the coming Messiah. So we, we have to... Some, and sometimes it goes back and forth, it seems. So having said that, we also remember that Isaiah is prophesying out into the future about the coming captivity uh, of Judah, uh, the Babylonian captivity. And sometimes it seems like this is already a done deal as indeed the prophets talk this way sometimes that you know these future events are a done deal uh, because God says they are. And so <laughs> that's the way they talk sometimes. Uh, all right, verse 1. Uh, Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their, their covering. All right, so these verses then, it seems to me that indeed the Lord is talking to Israel and uh, Isaiah is talking in view of the upcoming captivity um, so that Israel might be saying to the Lord over here languishing away in Babylon, why did you divorce us? You know, why... Why have you abandoned us? And the Lord responds, as it were, by saying, well, where is your certificate of divorce by which I divorced you, if that's really the case? Uh, so the Lord is explaining to Israel why, this is in the future now, they're in Babylon. And he says it's because of your own iniquities and your own transgressions that you were sold into captivity. That's why. It's not because I divorced you. Well, this is, this is all clear enough to me. I'm, does anybody? <laughs> in other words, they left God. I, I, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <clears throat> um, all right. In verse 2, when I came, there was no man. When I called, there was no one to answer. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? So, as we probably read before, I don't really remember, I think we have read before, and as we'll continue to read, these words, hand and arm, the hand of God and the arm of God, refer a lot to salvation. In other words, when God reaches down his hand, I mean, he's saving us. So it's just a, a motif that I, Isaiah uses. Um, his God's ability to save his hand. Okay, so... Uh, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened? Did it cannot redeem? Or, In other words, can God not save us? Can God not save Israel? 
uh, yes, he can. And again, the Babylonian captivity, well, as Chris said, it's because Israel, really Israel divorced God. God didn't divorce Israel. I mean, that was the, that's the problem, you know. So God can... could have easily. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They were adulterous. So, yeah. So. He allowed them to reap the results of their own life and behavior, you know. Okay, let's go to verse 4. <clears throat> the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Mm. Does, does some versions say the Lord has given me the tongue of a disciple or something like that? That says the learned. The learned? Okay. The learned. All right. The God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So now it seems to me that he is talking to the servant as in one person, which is really clear in verse 6, but he, the servant now is becoming the Messiah, it seems to me. So Messiah is saying, he's, God has given me the tongue of one who is taught, or the disciples, or the learned, so that I can sustain the weary. How has God given this servant uh, this good word well, uh, he is because he is listening to the Father. The Father has awakened his ear, as we'll see later. He's opened his ear in verse 5. Uh, so, it seems here that this is the path of discipleship. Uh, there's some visitors here if you want to. Yes. Uh, it seems here that this is the path of discipleship for us, too. I mean, we have to listen. Uh, you can... Listen in prayer. Uh, you can listen by reading the scripture. If you're not reading the scripture, I suspect you are. If you're not reading the scripture every day, let me encourage you to read the scripture every day. There's some amazing stuff in there. <laughs> and if you're like me, I tend to forget stuff that I used to know. Uh, I think I was more spiritual when I was 30 than I am now, you know. I think I have declined. Uh, I for, have forgot. But if I'll read scripture, oh yeah, I, rem I remember that. <laughs> oh yeah, Jesus died on my side. <laughs> oh, how, how could I forget? <laughs> All right. Um, so God does this. Uh, he, he teaches those who are taught by opening their ears in verse 5. It seems to me we need to be reading scripture. The servant says, I was not rebellious. I did, I did not turn backward. Um, okay, let me just do some more here on this. Verse 5. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Opening the ear is used several times in Scripture. Um, another famous opening the ear passage, and I'm going to run a little rabbit here, uh, and uh, maybe you can help me out, uh, particularly Connor as we talk about the Septuagint a little bit here. Um, there's a famous verse about opening the ear in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, that I'm going to read here.
Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Yes. Says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear, or my ear you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. This is a famous quote in the book of Hebrews, uh, talking about who Messiah is and so forth. Okay, technically here, uh, in verse 6, my ear you have opened. There's a different word here than open ear over here in Isaiah 50. Literally, in in Psalm 6, you have given me an open ear, you've opened my ear. In Hebrew, literally, it's dug, you've digged my ear. Or you have dug my ear. A lot of commentators say that probably refers to how the owner would drive an awl through the servant's ear against his doorpost if the servant desired not to go out free but to remain in, in the house of the master. The servant would drive an awl through his ear and that would be a symbol that, okay, you've decided to stay, so here you are. Uh, so... This servant here in Psalm 40 has had his ear opened by the Father. In other words, he's, he's the servant of the Father. <clears throat> Hebrews, it's a classic passage in Hebrews. In Hebrews, it says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Quoting, and he quotes the rest of the psalm here. This is a lot different, you know. And so, there's a lot of, you know, scholarly work and all that on this. So, let me just say a few things uh, here. Uh, the book of Hebrews indeed uses this passage, verses uh, 46 through 8, to talk about the Messiah, to talk about Christ. Uh, so why is it different? Well, <clears throat> a body that has prepared for me is the way the Septuagint brings it out. It seems, therefore, Connor, help me here, that the apostles, and particularly the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews, basically use the Septuagint in terms of their quotations from the Old Testament. Is that, would that be more or less there correct? There are very few exceptions to that. Mainly they use it. There are a few cases here and there where they're quoting from the Aramaic or the Hebrew, but they're doing it to make a particular point. The default Bible of Jesus, the apostles, and the church fathers was the Greek text, which was yes. the So one argument is that the apostles, Christ, and the church fathers simply viewed the Septuagint as being inspired scripture. So that's what they used. Um, I did find this out, and again I'm running a rabbit here, uh, that the manuscript traditions that we have we do have a copy of the Septuagint that dates from the 2nd century A.D. It's early. While we don't have any Masoretic Hebrew text until the 9th century A.D. So in terms of antiquity, I mean, the, by far the most uh, old manuscript that we have is Septuagint. So then that becomes a question, well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we can say here. But anyway, that's about as much as I have on it. If, uh, yeah, where, go ahead. Where's the Dead Sea Scrolls for that? Well, I don't know. Anybody know? That's, that's 
Septuagint, Where right. Where we get our Septuagint from. More ancient than the Septuagint, right? So. Right. Say what? I say some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are more ancient than the Septuagint. No, that is the Septuagint. That is the Septuagint. Is that the, the Dead one? Sea Scrolls was just a, it was like a library of stuff. Yeah. And most of it's just fragments. Is that where they found that copy, 2nd century A.D. and Dead Sea Scrolls? I, I believe so. I'm not 100% okay. sure. Is that correct? I don't know. I'm pretty sure. I thought, it, I thought we had it earlier than that because the Dead Sea Scrolls weren't discovered until like ninth, late 40s. So That's right. I, I have a feeling we had it before that. So. Okay. Well. The Septuagint goes back to 200 years before Christ. Yes, when it was translated. That's yeah. right. And it was... Like Connor says, it was the default Bible. It was just so like the King James Bible of the day. Like Everybody used it. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over. yeah. And the Orthodox Church uses that as their. Even now, yes. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've wondered if this uh, the saying you dug in here for me was maybe an idiom, uh, and it meant something incarnational, and that's why the Jews translated it that way. Indeed. Uh, just a short story. When I was in grad school, I lived lived in a house, and a married couple was was part of it. And the guy was from France, and he once we were discussing something, and he asked asked us once, "Well, where do you put the border?" And that's exactly what we did. What do you and mean? His, well, <laughs> his wife said he means where do you draw the line? Uh. So everybody knows what, ah. what, where do you draw the line means, but where, if you make but in French, a literal, <laughs> if you make a literal paraphrase yeah. of it, it makes no sense at all. Yeah, and yeah, idioms yeah. are like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, they're yeah. purely understandable yeah. to people who live in them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A generation later, they may be completely gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. There was a, a slogan from Pepsi, come alive with Pepsi. In, in China, it was translated as, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing, you know, when you're looking more and more in the voice of God, one and he, Hebrew says that God cannot lie. Well, wow. so it's impossible for God to lie. Can't ever lie. Jesus, we know, he says, "I am truth. I am the truth." So if God is true and can't lie, can we not trust Him? with his own word that he gives us, that it's going to be true and not full of lies. Oh, we can. I'm just saying that this but, is an uh, interesting so, textual problem here. Yeah. You know, between but it's, these but it's, verses. It's, you know, if we, if we truly trust that God can't lie and that Jesus is the author of Scripture, basically he's the, he, is the, he is the truth, he's going to, he's going to protect his own word. Uh, well, for he's sure. Going keep, he, he's going to keep any lies out of it. No, it's his job, it's his responsibility. Well, let's go on to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 then. Uh, this is clearly messianic here. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So this is so clearly uh, talking about Messiah here. The Messiah, this coming servant, is willing to have his body abused and killed on behalf of his people and as a fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices, of all this sacrifice system. Verse 7, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. If someone would help me here, 
uh, by looking up Luke uh, 9, verses 51 through 53. And let's read that. Luke basically quotes this passage here. Luke 9, 51 through 53. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, and he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, it seems to me that Luke is picking up this language here. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And Luke says that the Messiah set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was set. Um, beginning here then, in the passage Craig just read in Luke... Uh, Jesus' journey, long journey to Jerusalem, in a sense, begins. And this journey ends in Luke 19.44. We don't have to read it, but with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and saying, you didn't know the time of your visitation. You just didn't know. One of the most amazing books that I've ever read is called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson, a Scottish detective who spent, I guess, the major part of his life trying to work out this prophecy of the 70 weeks of years in Daniel. And in that last, uh, you know, where it start, starts and you got these 69 weeks or 69 times 7 it is, and it's I think it's 483 years. So this guy devotes his life, basically, to, you know, going through these ancient calendars and trying to work everything out and comes up with the conclusion. That as the decree went out from Cyrus to return and rebuild Jerusalem from that day until the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey was exactly 483 years. It's, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing book. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. Uh, so, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Think about Flint. Yeah. Is its usefulness is to be struck. Wow. Uh, and it does not break. Uh -huh. uh, but you can sharpen it. Mm -hmm. and you can create a spark from it. <laughs> Very good. All right, verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Uh, who will declare me guilty, says this servant. If, again, if someone would help me in uh, John chapter 8, verse 46. If anyone would look that one up, please. Uh, John 46. John, uh, let me see. Uh, 8.46? Yeah, and then Katie, if you would look at Matthew 6.22 and 23. We'll read a couple of others here. Matthew 6. Matthew 6.22 and 23. John 8.46. You read for it? Yes, John, uh, this was John 8.46. Please. Just that one verse? Yes. Okay. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Huh? Is that not right? Yes, oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so Jesus is entering in here to the prophecy of Isaiah 
In verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty, says this servant. Jesus enters into that in his life and says, Well, you know, you want to convict me and all that, but I mean, tell me. I'm, I'm willing to talk. Who convicts me of sin? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. No, no word. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here we go. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Meaning, in verse 11, well, 10 and 11, uh, if you're kindling a fire for yourself, then walk in the light of that fire. I think what the prophet is saying is, uh, since you're so smart and since you know everything about God, well, walk in, in your your opinion then. Go ahead and do that. Uh, and, and indeed, that's true. I mean, we can't force other people to believe or we can't force people to believe like we believe. So, whatever your belief is, please follow your belief. But if you're not believing in the Messiah, you shall lie down in torment in verse 11. Okay, New Testament quote. Matthew six twenty two and 23. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Hmm. I, I mean... You know, we know unsaved people, I mean, in the world. And, and we, know uns, we know people that are convinced in their unbelief. Therefore, if the light that is in them is darkness, well, how great is that darkness? And the prophet, kind of in a sarcastic way, would say, well, you're the one that has all the knowledge, then please go ahead and walk in what you know. I mean, what else can we say? I mean... You know, I'm going to force you to believe like I believe. We can't say that. So, go ahead and, and you, since you know, go ahead and do what you know. Yeah. And that's the prophet's message. So, we're out a little early today, but that's okay. I'm going to read a quote by John Chrysostom here <clears throat> in Walking in the Light. He says, The eye he speaks of, and he's commenting on this passage here in Isaiah. The eye he's, no, he's commenting on the passage in Matthew. The eye he speaks of is not the external, but the internal eye. The light is the understanding through which the soul sees God. He whose heart is turned to God has an eye full of light. That is, his understanding is pure, not distorted by the influence of worldly lusts. The darkness in us is our bodily senses, which always desire the things that pertain to darkness. Whoso then has a pure eye, that is a spiritual understanding, preserves his body in light, that is, without sin. For through, though the flesh desires evil, yet by the might of divine fear the soul resists sin. 
But whosoever has an eye, that is, an understanding, either darkened by the influence of the malignant passions or fouled by evil lusts, possesses his body in darkness. He does not resist the flesh when it lusts after evil things. So, an eye full of light and an eye full of darkness. And Christ would commend us to walk in the light that we have. So, that's all I have for today. If you have anything, I'd be happy to to hear that. I'll tell you, if you ever get to a place where you are in complete, total darkness, <laughs> where you cannot even see your hand. Like in one of those, uh, one of those caves down in. I know, yeah, you go, you go into a cave, deep into a cave, and they turn off all the lights. Yeah. yeah but so, it is. That's real darkness. It's as creepy as it could possibly be yeah. because you just, you lose all yeah. understanding of direction. Orientations. Everything. Yeah, everything yeah goes it is. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. All right, thank you. Let's drink coffee and hug next, and we'll see you in the service.